The issues faced by older people in society are having an increasing claim on the attention of politicians and government policymakers. But when many older people feel that the government fails to address their concerns, the need for social policy research that attempts to understand the lifestyles and behaviour of older people is vital. The Oldest Generation is an open university project that has been looking into older people's relationships and identities. It's part of a larger study called Timescapes that's taking place at several institutions across the UK. Timescapes has been exploring how personal and family relationships develop and change over time. And it's the first in-depth qualitative longitudinal study, that's one in which the same group of people are studied over a period of time, to have been carried out in the UK. My name's Joanna Bornat and I'm Professor of Oral History in the Faculty of Health and Social Care and I'm what's called the Principal Investigator on this project, which is a sort of two-and-a-half-year project, one of seven in the Timescapes programme. And uh, we're all of us involved in interviewing people, talking to people, and in our case, getting people to keep diaries as well. My name is Bill, by the way, and I'm working with Joanna on this project. I'm a researcher in the Faculty at the Open University. I'm a a gerontologist. I've spent 30-plus years uh, researching how people grow older. And so when the possibility of working on this project came up, I thought this is great because it's an opportunity to look at change over time, which was day by day by day. So that's why I was interested and keen to join it. The the bigger answer is that um, longitudinal research with older people, there is some. It tends to be uh, undertaken by psychologists we felt that there was a need for a more sociological perspective which uh, looked at how older people coped with change over time, change of all kinds. Yeah, I think it's true to say that quite often older people are focus on other people's research but not in their own right. Often they'll be the subject in a secondary sense, people being asked about their grandparents or asked about caring responsibilities and we really wanted to hear much more about what people do in their everyday lives over the age of 75, and also what they had to say about those lives that they've lived. My name is Karen Francis, and I am the project secretary for the Oldest Generation project. The Oldest Generation is about people over the age of 75, how they live, where they live, what happens in their daily lives... We've actually selected 12 families, um, all very, very different. Each family has a senior over the age of 75 and a member of that family, younger member of the family, collects almost daily information about the senior. We've asked the recorder, as we called them, to write a diary as much detail as they care to provide us with um, over an 18-month period. The seniors in each of the family have been interviewed twice over the 18 months and the interviews of the seniors tended to be more, more or less their life story from when they were very, very young. In terms of recruiting the, the sample, we put out a call through the Open University Network, through the regional offices primarily, asking for people to volunteer their families to join this project. And we set ourselves certain criteria whereby we wanted to make sure we ended up with a diverse sample. So we wanted to make sure we had at least one person from at least four regions and at least five men and at least five women. And We were particularly concerned about the age range. We wanted to have at least five over 85 and at least one over 95. 
So we set those uh, criteria and having got uh, something like 40 volunteered families, we then uh, shuffled things around and found 12 who met all our criteria. That's my diary. That's the diary I've got to fill in. As you can see, it's uh, called the Timescape Programme, the oldest generation diary. Albert was the very last of the families to be recruited um, and he is actually unique to the project. All the other families each have a senior member of the family who's interviewed and a recorder in the family who writes the diary each month and stays in touch with us. Albert is the only one who actually is the senior, so he's interviewed twice and he writes his own diary. His choice, and it actually has worked pretty well. Well, the thing about Albert was um, when he volunteered to participate in the project and we met him, he was happy to be interviewed. But when we got onto the question of the diary, he said, well, I'll keep the diary. And we thought, you know, do we want this? He would be the exception. But we thought, well, he clearly you know, wants to keep the diary. So we said, yes, you keep the diary and um, that will be fine by us. I think the other thing I would add is that um, we do see the, the families as participating in the research and you know, families are structured in different sorts of ways and we wanted to some extent to allow the families to dictate the ways in which they participated. You want me to read Tuesdays, yesterday's, what, what happened yesterday? I got up early this morning to see my sister off. She's leaving at 8am or the airport to go back to Jamaica. I got next door for 7am and helped to take some of the luggage to the cars. I took some photographs and waved goodbye. The grandchildren were still asleep. I was going to take them for a walk with me at 9am, but they were still asleep, so I left them and went on my own. It's surprising that you, the amount of things that you can find to put in your diaries that you'd never actually think about in, in, in different circumstances. You, you sort of realise that you do a lot more in a day that you thought you'd done. You know, so, um, yes, it's just sort of making you, your brain ticks over. So thinking about Albert, he clearly has an active relationship with his two sisters, one of whom has been to visit him. Yeah, I think we all have become part of the, the, the whole project. It's become a family thing now. Especially my immediate family. We, we all, we, we've all become a part of it. And they, they all look forward to taking part in, in it whenever I'm doing anything. I think they also see me in a different light. As someone who's not as daft as they originally thought. <laughs> One thing that's come out of the um, research for him is he said it's um, his, it, this has renewed his relationships with his sisters and particularly one of them in the States who he now feels much closer to having told his life story and thought about his life. So much so I think that he's I think on the phone to her almost every week where previously I don't think he was. And so it's, it's interesting that carrying out that life review has had some changes and, and the res doing the research I think has changed these families? Oh, it took me way back in my past. It made me remember things that I'd forgotten for years. 
And strangely enough, I was quite surprised that I could remember things that happened quite a young age of my life, you know, maybe from the age of six or seven. And so that, you know, sort of sort of brought back a, a lot of old and good memories to me, which I, you know, sort of began to cherish really and to sort of keep in my mind because there were... There were good days then to me, even though, you know, uh, there weren't all easy times, you know, sometimes were hard and difficult and and everything like that, but uh, I just treasure them as good memories. One of the key themes in Timescapes is time, temporality, and what the interviews and the diaries and also the photographs offer are different slices of time. So the interviews are a retrospective view. The first round of interviews is a retrospective sense of the life lived, coming up to date. And the diaries are quite different because they're more immediate, they're more about everyday life and managing everyday life. And then the photographs are kind of one-offs, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Just instant pictures of, of a group of people. And so the interplay of those different temporalities is very interesting to us. Joanna made audio recordings of the interviews she conducted so that they could be transcribed for the project archive. One of the participants in the study who Joanna talked to is an older woman from a large family in North London. The project team call her Maisie. That's not her real name, but throughout the study the team were very careful to ensure that people's identities were protected. In the course of walking, I saw a man who I know has been recently widowed, and I knew his wife, and he has looked so miserable, so I just said to him, you know, how are you today? You know, and you could see he, he barely answered. And I just said to him, do you play Scrabble? And he said, yes. So I said, well, any time you want a game, uh, I, you know, and I think I frightened him. <laughs> and it is, it's really quite amusing at times. And really, I mean, I'm not looking for a partner at all. I just thought I would ease him. It's an overture to try and get somebody to, to feel a little better. That's all you could say. Well, it's, it sort of gives me a nice picture of you here, in a way, that, of, of the kind of life you have. And well, the sort you, of you know, we... we, we, we we need to help one another. What was famous saying, no man is an island. It's true. The clip with Maisie, I, I liked it very much because um, I liked her manner and I liked the very fact she was very direct and very much engaged in her local community and had a kind of sense of responsibility towards it. She's lived there for a long time in the same house. The story kind of encapsulated all those things, those aspects of her, that she'd remade her own life after she'd been widowed. She'd had a very happy relationship with her husband who died not long after he'd retired and she'd had to sort of start again making her own sort of social life independently and and she'd done it successfully and she'd kind of got drawn back more into the synagogue and um, so she saw someone who was going through what she'd gone through I think and just took on this very neighbourly responsible friendly role and then told the story about herself and I, th I like the fact that she told it about herself because she'd chosen something to illuminate what sort of person she was. For Bill too, the small day-to-day -day details of a life can reveal a surprising amount. I came to this project knowing that um, one of the appeals of doing it for 18 months was we'd get a full year. 
and having a full year, we could say something about the, uh, the significance of the seasons. What a day. It rained, it snowed, it's windy and cold. I wish I didn't have to guard, but I had to. I had no choice. It was mine and Avi's turn to clean the church today, so we left at 10am to make a start. It was so cold and snowing. Then we got to the church and my key wouldn't open the door. It's community commitment, isn't it? Um, they're down to clean the church, you know, and that's sort of non-negotiable. I mean, some people in his situation had decided not to bother, but he felt he had to. This is a part of a routine, and frustrations upon frustrations, he couldn't get in. So having got there, you know, they couldn't actually do their, what they were supposed to do. There's other examples. For example, we were threatened with bad weather for Friday and Saturday, so did some precautionary shopping today. It was very cold. I went for the blood test missed yesterday. In the afternoon, it started to sleet, which later turned to snow. We soon had a white covering over the garden, though not really thick. We stayed firmly indoors. And then the following day, day he wrote, We woke to find a fierce wind blowing. We went as soon as possible to the market, as worse weather is expected. We then thankfully returned home to put up the proverbial shutters. In other words, there's a siege going on here. The two of them are going to uh, sit it out, and when the weather returns to something more pleasant, uh, they will be back out into the market and shopping again. So, in other words, this is evidence of how they're looking after their well-being in the context of the weather forecast. So people you know, are prepared to go out, and they are committed to supporting the community and the family in this, but at the same time, you know, they, they recognise the importance of uh, minimising risk. But how can this sort of research feed into policy making? One of the partners that the project team have been working with is the Institute for Public Policy Research. Well, talking to IPPR and Ruth Sheldon, who did some work on our data, I think what she finds is that what we have here are real-life stories which fill out some of the larger statistical, big quantitative surveys of carers and carer relationships or older people living at home. You can actually see the sort of dynamics of day-to-day living and how various policies affect or what policies might do to enhance or change relationships or down to quite basic things around finance and um, various kinds of support. And I think it's because the data speaks very directly from people's own experience. But on top of that, I think there are some generalities we can draw even from such a small sample. I think it's interesting what Joanna's just said because the implications of policy, it does seem to me to emerge out of what might be called individual case studies. Over the last 20 years or so, it's been very interesting to see what's happened in regard to care. Policies are being brought into play to support the carer. Carers get assessed as well as the person they're caring for gets assessed. And we we have in our sample uh, quite a number of carers, uh, both of the oldest and of the younger generation, And so we're able to see informal care, family-based care, in a rather broader context. And you do have some people over 75 who are flying in aeroplanes in order to accompany their sick spouse in a a city hospital. But at the other extreme, we've got two or three people who are in wheelchairs when they go out. And we get in the diaries very graphic accounts of hitting the local shopping mall, you know, and the the fact that they're still using rather old-fashioned lift systems. But I think what interests us is how the families themselves, or what evidence we have of the families themselves, understanding what's going on in their 
often in, usually in their parents' lives. So it's the kind of support that family members give each other. And for example, one couple where, who are both well into their 80s, she had a bad fall and injured herself in the shower. And immediately, it seems, the two daughters who both live at least 200 miles away seem to be on the scene. But the interesting thing about that family is that she has a, an alarm system around her neck. Uh, they pressed the alarm, which uh, then mobilised a neighbour who came round to help. And as a result of that, you know, she received the kind of care and support she needed. So, in other words, the, the system worked then, but nevertheless, it depended upon the alarm working and the neighbour being willing and the daughter being willing and um, the older couple being able to sort of cope with all this, you know. And, and I, I think there's other instances where I think one could similarly make a direct link between an individual family story and, you know, a policy of the central government. So research like the oldest generation can feed into policy-making debates on a national level. But what about the people at the front end, the people who took part in the study, both participants and researchers? What did they get out of it? The whole experience of the project has been fantastic, um, has made me think, has made me become more aware. Has actually, I've actually learned some things which I probably didn't know before. I get a lot of fun out of it, really. I don't want it to end. <laughs> I want it to go on for as long as is possible, maybe for myself and for what I get out of it and for how I'm helping, you know. Thank you.